My second game of the season, we're playing the Buffalo Bills. So I'm like, I'm about to just bear down into this running back. His name was Travis Henry, uh, by the way. Um, and like I've done a million times, literally, at this point in my life, I do this and I hit him. The collision happens. I end up on my back. And in this point of me being on my back, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, get up and, you know, celebrate like we've done, you know, on defense, we go crazy, get the fans going, all that good stuff. But this particular play, I, I hit him, I'm on my back, and I'm saying, okay, where's the celebration? I'm saying, Keith, get up. ever stop to wonder who you really are, or how much control you have over your own identity? I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune, where every week we explore the ideas, values, and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. In today's episode, we tackle life quite literally through the story of Keith Mitchell, a former all-pro NFL linebacker. Football was his entire identity. It's how people knew him his whole life, ever since he was a kid. But suddenly, in one split second, it all changed. His life was completely upended by an injury. Not only would Keith never play football again, but he would be paralyzed for six months, leaving him with a blank page where his identity used to be. On today's episode, we hear about Keith's remarkable recovery and his journey to discovering his new purpose. And later, we explore the scientific and social dimensions of identity with Professor Jennifer Bosson at the University of South Florida. But first, let's talk football. I've heard you say this before, but um, in that part of the country, football is like a religion. Like, like it's not a coincidence that church and football both happen on, on Sunday, right? Oh, it's no coincidence. And they even let you out on time to watch the Cowboys on, on Sunday afternoon. So it, it works together. <laughs> <laughs> well, so can you take me through a little bit what it was like? growing up in Texas and how you, you know, got into football and, you know, take me through a little bit of your early, early development and, and how that environment kind of shaped who you were. I was more like, the, I was raised more like the, the, the studious type and not that you can't be studious and play sports at the same time, but I was more like the nerdy kind of guy. So I was like more in the corner, like quiet and things like that. So when I became, when I began to play sports, uh, you know, I just I adapted the personality, I adapted the lifestyle, and it kind of it kind of ran its own course, right. if you, you will. <laughs> you sort of became that that Keith Mitchell, the character. Yeah. And your job at that juncture was linebacker, is that right? Yes, that was it. So, and I mean, talk a little bit about that position because uh, you know not everyone and listening to a, a podcast on wellness might know exactly what the responsibilities or the versatility that a linebacker might have to have, you know, physically. But linebacker is kind of this, this versatile thing. You've got to do all things, right? 
Yeah, you got to do everything, actually. <laughs> yeah, the linebacker has to be able to be, you know, big enough to hit the 300-pounders. It has to be fast enough to catch and run down the receivers and running backs. Right. Um, and, and, then, and then make these tackles on some of these guys who are just as big as you are. And then with all the distractions in the, in the crowd, and you can't be, uh, you can't let those distractions take you away from being present or holding that intention of what that play that you're running is. Yeah, it's almost that you're the part of your brain that does conscious processing almost isn't enough. You know, you you, you uh, like eventually evolve where it's this kind of subconscious brain that you you're you've done this so many times that you almost have a sixth sense for it, right? Yes, yeah, and you actually kind of build it because through like like again, it's so that's why I really think the synergy of of mindfulness, just the awareness, is so present in sports because through repetition we find this it's like we used to say well you 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 think through the week and and during the game you just react yeah you know it's so funny that there's so many parallels you know i i know this one of the greatest jazz pianists in the world you know he talks about the same thing it's technique 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 and then that's the fuel to tap into this kind of spiritual well you know where you're not thinking at all and you're just exactly. in, you're just in the moment. So now take me, you know, past the saints and kind of I, I guess to the inflection point of your life. You know, to to the play that that kind of changed everything for you. You're making this play a, a hit uh, on someone running back, probably like coming across the middle or something. And you've done that. Yeah. How many times you made that play? <laughs> At least, at least, at least, who knows, but too many times to remember. Yeah, and then you just end up on your back. Is that what happened? I ended up on my back, yes. I ended up on my back, and, you know, um, it's that, it was at that position, that posture, like the, the most vulnerable uh, position that we talk about uh, in yoga, even. We talk about Shavasana, and I was in Shavasana in front of 80,000 people. Uh, but I also had the gladiator mentality at that time. So I didn't want to be in Shavasana. <laughs> I wanted to get out of here. Cause it was like, I thought I was, in, I was embarrassed because I had never been in that position ever, uh, in my life. And I felt it and it was un- uneasy for me, even as I didn't know what was actually happening or going on with my body. My thought process went immediately to how embarrassing I feel. Really? Yes. That's an, that's kind of intense. It is very intense. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, in a way, I mean, football kind of, you know, the, the amount of pride and ego, you know, that you probably built up around, you know, your identity. I mean, we all have that, right? You know, of yeah. like what we do best. And then all of a sudden we're, we're flat on our back, either metaphorically or in this particular case, literally. And, instead of thinking about our own self-care, we're like feeling embarrassed. That's kind of crazy. Yes. That is insane, yes. But I guess maybe through that repetition, we, we're kind of cultivating this mindset. You know, you're cultivating this toughness that I, I, can't, I can't show weakness and I got to be strong and even when I'm weak, you know, uh, because the reality of every game, no player is playing at 100%. Maybe you start in the NFL, like day one, 100%, but every day after that, you're like in less than 100%. No one's playing 100% out there. Yeah, because all the, the, the nicks and the bruises add up. 
uh, through your lifetime. Yeah, so rough. And so you're uh, so you're in the hospital. You wake up in the hospital, and you you're paralyzed. You just can't move now. From kind of what part, from the waist down, or just take me through that, like waking up and having that realization and what your condition was. Well, I had never really been uh, in a situation quite like that or really ever like that. Um, waking up in a hospital, they, I still had my pants on, my pads, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, for the game. I'm like, what happened? And I'm like trying to move. My mother's there. And, uh, and they're like, well, uh, we don't really know. And when you can't, I mean, how long did that period last where you really just were immobilized? Well, I was there. They didn't move me for, I mean, it was probably about two and a half, three weeks there just in that bed, uh, uh, in that hospital, uh, you know, you know, having so many doctors come in and out and they're poking. It's like, you feel like a science project and they're like, well, we're trying to understand this and we don't know what the spine looks like. And we got the pictures and uh, we don't, we don't know. And, you know, it's, 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 is actually is devastating. It's like your teammates are coming in and everyone's like, so like there, it's like a, it's like even like a funeral, even <laughs> it's like, Oh, poor Keith. Like, I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. But you did make it. So what was the turning point, uh, for you? And, and I know that there was somewhere along the line where, um, you were introduced to this idea of conscious breathing and, um, and, and this wasn't really, you know, your 10 minute a day meditation practice. I mean, when you're kind of lying on your back and you can't probably do anything, um, this might've been a pretty useful tool that you used like all the time. So how did that all occur? Well, well yeah. So how that worked was they had a, had a nurse there for my rehab, which really we couldn't do anything, <laughs> but, uh, but, but she did one thing that turned the light on in my mind, and it kind of goes back when I believed and I saw the player who was getting scholarships, and I realized that I could participate in that as well. And when she told me conscious breathing, and she told me that through this idea of conscious breathing, breathing from the diaphragm, from the belly, on the inhale it pushes up, on the exhale it pushes down, uh, she told me that I could uh, access healing this way. She told me that uh, this is this is like uh, even like a natural light of my healing, and in my mind, another light clicked on and says, "Wow, I can contribute to this." You know, I don't have, and then I've taken it further since then to realize that I was thinking that I didn't have to be the victim at this point. I could contribute to this, but there's still going to be work to be done, and that's going to be the hardest work to maintain that idea. And actually, the the, the most the toughest work that I had to do after making the the understanding or coming to the understanding that I could participate in my own healing was the work to maintain that mm. because it got even darker when I got, when they sent me home and I had the people away from me and I'm going through depression and I'm going to, I'm going through having to be uh, deal with no, not being able to move, not being able to feed myself. And, and I'm pushing everyone away and I'm in this room and I got this house and these houses and these cars and I'm only confined to one room. I'm having a nervous breakdown and I'm having to deal with the cold Turkey <laughs> and, uh, do this, do this meditation and, and, and things like that. Uh, those begin to be like, 
like I always, it's like I was in the in the bottom of this pit, and someone threw me a rope, and that was like my salvation through the whole thing, and it was my go-to. So when those days got very dark for me, and I was like, the Viking pills were right there, and I could just take it, you know. And I and I was thinking about these types of things, and it was the thing that sustained me, and. And, and and then I noticed certain things happening. I noticed like I had movement. I, I noticed certain things. I, I had my I had a person who would take care of me. She would cook for me and things like that. And she and in my room I had this big space where I, I would they would have me on the floor and I and I would just find myself in what I know now is Yin Yoga. I would find myself in different types of you know laying on the ground where I could stretch a little bit or just hold a certain pose that I could just lay in for ten minutes. And it was like, and then I could breathe into that. And I began to know and understand my body a little bit. And it was like each day was getting better and better. Mm. It, and it was, a, it was a process even still. But I, I began to like really begin to relate to my body. And then sometimes in those places, but, but, and I hadn't really said much about this, but I would have breakdowns because I remember like the pain that I would go through in practice and all the years of hitting people and the abuse that you would take in the body. So I would have breakdowns. I would literally start crying in some of these postures. Mm. And I started to realize what I realized now that I was going through like a, a grieving or forgiving, uh, forgiveness type period of like just realizing what I had done to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very interesting because even as we find ourselves getting into different circumstances, we also realize that we've caused them as well. We put ourselves in these majority of these, majority of the time. So, and with that being said, but, Regardless of that, we were, were in this, and I was just having a whole epiphany about what my body was doing and what I was doing to it. And, and um, it was, a, again, a life-changing situation for me, and uh, it was an eye-opener. It sounds almost like a, a rebirth or like a resurrection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Deepak actually said that. It's like you're, he actually said on the, on the, on the field, you, it's like you're... you're the football person was dying that day, yeah, and uh, and I was trying to hold on to it, and 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 it seemed like I was through the whole experience because I didn't know myself outside of the football person. I didn't know who Keith was, and through this experience, I was remembering who Keith was, because <laughs> right. you know, because that that was going to have to sustain me. So who's the, who's the real Keith? Ah, <laughs> that's a tough one. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the real Keith? You know, I'm I'm learning. I'm learning who the real Keith is, but also I'm learning like how, uh, you know, the same possibility that we talk about in sports is possible in our existence as 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 people. Uh, I like to even say as human beings, because what does that look like? What does the development of a human being look like? You know, in, in sports, we talk about every interview, you see the players are talking about, well, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. But at, what does what getting better as a human being looks like? And what I've been noticing that in my life after that, I've been realizing what it looks like. And it's been in the endeavors that we've been doing and creating and, um, and finding ourselves getting into for, you know, just a positive, uh, you know, whether it be businesses. You know, I have a new company coming out, uh, I met a nutrition uh, I've been searching, like, you know, I, I don't think we've talked about this, but they did a, an x-ray of my brain back in, um, uh, what's 15 or 14, um, in my right lobe is like, is, 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 is a little bit more forward than my left. 
So basically my brain looks like in a lot of cases with the calcifications in my brain, it looks like it was, um, you know, I was, I was 70 years old. And then from that, I went vegan and I met, um, uh, Dr. Sabi and, uh, Dr. Sabi has been one of those influential people. He's a homeopathic, uh, doctor, um, out of Honduras and totally changed my life. Uh, and, and like I've been on a mission, uh, to after he, cause he's passed away t- as of two years ago. And I've been on a mission of just like implementing things of like this nutrition that I found through him that that's been able to work so sufficiently through my body. And it's been profound. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that with the world. Yeah. And you, you're also teaching, you're teaching yoga and meditation. Is that right? Yeah, I'm teaching yoga meditation. Um, I, I'm created, uh, we're working uh, with this organization. Uh, the, the new endeavor that we have is in East Texas, you know, back to where I'm from. Um, uh, this institution, uh, the William Brown Institute, uh, they service 1.2 million people. We get to go into the, the therapy or the diagnosis room with the primary care physician, and we get to suggest uh, a holistic regimen, whether it be meditation, whether it be uh, dynamics of yoga and nutritional aspects uh, with the primary care physician to to help combat whether it be cancer, uh, HIV, uh, to whatever the various patients they have, uh, we get to work with. And I'm, I'm like so happy because a lot of uh, uh, people in this area have never been introduced to meditation or, or yoga. So, so when you talk about these things of possibility, these are the dynamics of what I've been, been able to realize that that human being is and what that can grow into and what that, when, and what that looks like. You know, I started a program working with the LAPD. It was so funny. I, I, I was, uh, when I first started working with LAPD, I, I, had a, I was worried about this. I wanted to introduce something to them. And there was uh, the funny thing. It was essential oils. <laughs> I'm like, but these guys don't really like <laughs> Oh, man. I, I'm like, no. <laughs> I wish I had a video of that, man. <laughs> and how did that go? And, and I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do it anyway. So I, so before they came in, because, you know, we're at the police academy downtown, so I had put it in all the tables. And I'm like, they're like, well, what is this right here? And I'm like, yeah, this is essential oil. This, we got lavender, we got peppermint. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, before we get started, I want you to just put some on your wrist and rub it together and maybe smell it, right? Because that's the perfect start to meditation. And uh and the guys were like, just like blown away. I had guys at the end. They were like, you know what? Hey, where'd you, where do you get those? Where can I get those? My wife loves it. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. You're breaking open whole new markets, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so cool. Well, man, your story is, is so inspirational. I mean, we've hung out a lot over the years and I've heard it, but every time that we reconnect, I'm just like, I'm just blown away by the story, man, and, and just how you've been able to deal with what could have been seen as like the most tragic event of your life. On some level, I feel like you turned it into maybe the best thing that could have happened. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, life gives us so many curves and, you know, you can look at it as, as the, as the victim, you can look at it as uh, this is the opportunity. And I just choose to look at it as opportunity, um, you know, and realizing there's no good, there's no bad. It's just holding that intention. And, and that's my ultimate goal. 
to share the practices uh, that we can incorporate to have better lives, you know, have love in our lives and, 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 and do the things like connect, uh, which we're really malnourished from that creates a lot of this dysfunction that happens in the world. to identity, inspiring as it may be, Keith's story begs more questions than answers. Are we products of our own thoughts, or does society play a larger role in our identity than we care to admit? And how much do other people's expectations of us play into our own sense of self? What happens if everything we believe to be true about ourselves doesn't actually match up with reality? What are the things that truly shape the people we become. The concept of personal identity is far from simple. So to dig a bit deeper, we talked to professor of psychology, Dr. Jennifer Bosson at the University of South Florida. We asked her to help us answer one of the biggest questions a person ever asks, who am I? My research on identity stems from or is grounded in a theory called self-verification theory, which is based on the idea that people have a powerful need for consistency. And we, in some ways, or I I guess um, in many ways, we meet that need for consistency by seeking out relationship partners and feedback that um, kind of confirms our, our beliefs about ourselves. So the idea is that a person with maybe a mix of positive and negative self-views would actually prefer a romantic partner or friends who see them the way they see themselves, even with regard to their negative self-views. So really what we're seeking out in our peers and our community group is essentially verification around how we already see ourselves. That is, yes, that is in a nutshell, a very nice (laughs) um, articulation of the core uh, of self-verification theory. Um, Yeah, that, that we, we have a powerful need for consistency. We, we like, um, it's unsettling to us if we discover that somebody else sees us in a way that doesn't match how we see ourselves. It, It can raise anxiety about whether our social interactions will unfold smoothly, or it can be kind of, um, it can put pressure on us to feel like we have to live up to some view of ourselves that doesn't match how we see ourselves. So Keith, you know, was an all-pro football player from across the state. You're in Tampa, I think. And he had an interesting, you know, upbringing. Um, You know, he began to play football at a very young age. And, you know, football was this kind of thing that almost enveloped his whole sense of identity. You know, he played in in junior high and then in high school and then got recruited for Texas A&M and then got a scholarship and, you know, then went on to play pro football. 
And, you know, it, it became such a huge part of how he judged himself and about how other people judged him. And I wonder, you know, if you could give us sort of a window into some of those psychological processes that are at work there about how someone almost creates this kind of identity um, or the character of who they are. Yeah. So what he was describing was very just kind of a classic understanding that um, social psychologists have about how we come to think of ourselves in certain ways, because it sounds like, you know, if you as a child demonstrate some gift or some skill that kind of sets you apart from others, the people in your in your surroundings are likely to notice that and give you feedback about it and encourage it. And in childhood, children don't, children's self-use, their beliefs about who they are, are not concretized in childhood. So they're, they're relatively flexible and malleable. So, you know, one of the main theories about how we come to see ourselves a certain way is that, you know, in childhood, when we do stuff, uh, we notice how people react to us. And when people react in a favorable way, we get motivated to kind of repeat the behaviors that elicited favorable feedback. So it's, it's easy to imagine that if you're a, a kid who kind of has this rare skill and then people around you are kind of encouraging you and supporting you and, and talking to you and saying, oh, you know, you're really good at that. You, it looks like you, you could be a football player. Then that you kind of internalize that feedback and that becomes your beliefs about yourself. So it, it seems that just surrounding himself with football culture and with people who were giving him feedback about his skills would easily lead him to then develop all of these self-use surrounding football that made his identity as a football player very central to his beliefs about who he is. And another thing about things that are in really intense skills like football is that you you can't really live a well-rounded life if you're aiming for, you know, NFL status abilities or if you want to be the best ballerina in the world or the best artist, right? So you, so it, it not only was all of the feedback about football that he was getting encouraging him to develop self-views about himself as a football player, but I imagine that on a daily basis, he was making decisions to spend more time on the football field than to do other things. And so you kind of, the more time and energy you put into developing one part of yourself, the, the fewer opportunities you have to kind of develop other talents and skills and self-use. Yeah, and then in Keith's case, which is obviously very, very unique, in, you know, an instant, his whole life changed and in a way that he had to see himself in an entirely new way um, and essentially like redevelop his own self-identity, which sort of prompts me to ask the question, is the way someone sees themselves the same thing as their identity or is identity kind of objective or subjective? Like, do we have a true identity or is it just really a reflection of how we see ourselves? In my discipline, at least, we tend to think of identity as something that's the result of self-reflection. So if, from my theoretical background, I would say if you come to see yourself differently, then you have changed your identity. But another distinction that people make in my field is that identity 
is your belief about yourself within the context of meaningful social groups or roles. So his so he definitely had an identity as a football player. Like that that seeing himself as fulfilling the role of football player was definitely a core, you know, very central identity for him. And then he he kind of gradually had to replace that with seeing himself as a different kind of person or, you know, as now a yogi or um, an instructor or whatever, you know, social role he now sees himself fulfilling. So I'm going to tell you a little story about a friend of mine. um, And I want to, I'd love to get your opinion on it because it brings up a question that I don't know the answer to and you might. Okay. Um, So I have a friend named Chris and he grew up without a dad. Um, Never knew his dad. Uh, his father left, you know, when he was, you know, a couple of days old, essentially. And his last name is Cuevas. And he um, he grew up with this association of being Mexican. Um, so much, he was lived in the East Bay. You know, he was kind of a rough and tumble kind of guy, you know, got into a bunch of kind of gang stuff. Um, has like a gold tooth and like Mexican kind of Spanish tattoos all over him, like kind of a badass, um, this total sweetheart, but looks like a badass. Um, right, right. And, um, you know, his whole life was very associated with this identity. He had um, a girlfriend who wouldn't marry him until he found his dad, and she actually helped him to find his dad. And after 45, 50 years, he became kind of reunited with his father over a phone call, and he didn't live far away. So, okay. um, so they decided to have a meetup, and he hadn't seen his dad his whole life, so, and he was just turning 50. So he drove out, I think, to Modesto, California, and he pulls up, and there's like 150 cars like in the driveway and spilling out all over onto the street. And his dad had decided to plan and organize a family reunion for, the, yeah, which like has its own psychological analysis there, I'm sure, yeah. which will be a separate podcast. I'll call you back on that one. <laughs> um, but, um, but Chris walks in, and everybody's Asian. And the Ooh. name Cuevas is actually Filipino. And after 50 years of worshiping Cesar Chavez and being part of Mexican right. gangs and the whole thing, his whole identity, like, just goes up, <laughs> you know, in the right, air. Right, right, right. And so, you yeah. know, and of course he, he had to deal with it and and he did. But the question that it prompts me to ask is, is there a difference between Chris actually being Mexican um, and just him thinking that he's Mexican, like just from like an identity perspective, not from an ethnicity perspective, but from an identity perspective. Right, right. That's a really complicated question. And it reminds me of the um, kind of the the topic of transracial, that, you know, whether it's possible to be transracial or what does it mean to be transracial, like people who are one race but strongly identify with another race. And I guess for me, the scientist part of me that like wants to say, if you identify as Mexican, then you are Mexican to yourself 
And if that's your reality, then that's your identity. And so to some degree, I feel like who we believe we are a little bit trumps who we actually are in terms of, at least in terms of shaping our own perceptions. But I also realize that that's kind of a politically dangerous thing to say because you get a lot of pushback if you say, oh, sure, a white person could just identify as black and then, you know, because that's obviously has political ramifications that can be offensive or um, problematic in, in many ways. But, but the part of me that, but there is a part of me that thinks he was legitimately Mexican until he discovered that he wasn't. I don't, I don't have a problem with saying that, sure, he was, you know, okay, maybe genetically he wasn't descended from people who were Mexican, but, um, but if he identified with that and that was the culture in which he surrounded himself, then for all practical purposes, uh, to me, it feels like, you know, we are who we identify as. Mm, that is so interesting. And, I mean, it speaks to free will, in a way. Um, yeah. That we can shape our reality uh, and our identity if we are truly um, authentically committed to that. I, I think so. And, but it also speaks to the social construction of a lot of our groups and memberships to begin with. Because it's only a problem for him to have been to have considered himself Mexican when he wasn't biologically Mexican it's only a problem because the social consensus is that we define being Mexican in a specific way and so yeah so like when you start to kind of peel back the layers of of what all these things mean at at the base what you get to is that like all of our categories are socially constructed to some degree. So, I mean, that's probably why I don't really have a problem with individuals kind of deciding on their own, you know, for, for themselves that this is how I identify because it, it, it's all just kind of some socially agreed upon set of rules. So if you don't agree with the rules, um, but, but again, I totally get all of the problems. So I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a, it's a question that makes me nervous. <laughs> but how did your friend deal with it? Did he, did he go through, here's a question for you. Was it as, de- did he go through a depression or like a feeling of upheaval when he discovered that his relatives were Asian that was comparable to what Keith went through? I think, yes, he went through an upheaval, probably a period of shock. Um, but I think, you know, really where he gravitated back to is what you said is like, this is the way that I've lived my life, my entire life. These are my heroes. These are my customs. This is what I like to eat. This is how I like to speak. This is how I hang out with. And so I'm Mexican. Screw whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do end up coming to that because it's hard because okay so because identity is or your your self concept your 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 set of beliefs about who you are and your memories of of everything you've done and and you know your beliefs about your group, group membership for many people that you know what we call the self concept which is your entire set of beliefs and thoughts and feelings about yourself that's one of the most 
powerful kind of mental structures that you have, right? So this is one of the reasons why I was drawn to self-psychology in the first place. But, but like our self-concept really is our, our map of, of the world. Like it's very important to people to, to feel like we know who we are. Whether or not we're right is another question entirely, but people have a very powerful need to feel like we know who we are and we know why we do what we do. And, and so it's, if your identity is built around something that ends up to have been a fiction, but you have the choice to say, <laughs> to say I'm going to stick with the, with the identity, then probably a lot of people will choose that. Yeah, well, I think in, in Keith's situation and I think he acknowledges this is that you know he had essentially become a character that had been fueled on a lot of ego and adulation of the crowd and this you know how big of a hit he can put on the running back and you know all of these things that have built up and patterns that had built up over time and uh, and then you know in in an instant all that changed and he, he didn't have the optionality and he, at that juncture, felt like he needed to discover who the real Keith was. And yeah. for, and for yeah. him, uh, now, that real Keith, that real identity, you know, might be subjective on some level. But I think, you know, for him, you know, it was about, you know, cultivating things that are true um, and eternal truths about himself, um, about love and compassion and spirituality and forgiveness and all of these things that now I think he's become more closely in touch with. So how should a person go about establishing their identity um, or get, get a grip on the reality of who they are? Is there a real, is there a one way to do it? Well, I, I really think it, it, it's up to the individual. People who are inquisitive and maybe like are struggling to figure out um, who they really are. I guess I liked the story that Keith told because I feel like you can never just adopt wholesale a new identity. You don't just go from I'm a football player to I'm a yogi. Like you, you don't go from one fully formed identity to another. There's always going to be a process of saying goodbye to one identity and then kind of tiptoeing closer and closer to another one. Like, He didn't have control over much, but one thing he could control was his breathing. So like, to me, that's a really nice illustration of sometimes you just have to start with really small things. Like, so what's something that you're drawn to or what's something that you think you might be good at? And you, and don't just, you can't just leap wholesale again into like, now I'm an expert at this, or now I'm going to think of myself this way, but you have to just kind of incrementally move closer to a new identity by trying something small and try it for a few days. And then if it sticks, keep going with it. And so it sounds like, you know, he didn't, and I'm sure he had in times of impatience with himself, but like he did it, he did it perfectly. That's, that's exactly what, you know, that's an effective way to kind of adopt a new identity is um, some people call it kind of gateway identities. You kind of adopt, smaller versions of the identity that you want that will allow you to kind of move incrementally closer to that identity. So I think that's a way to do it. But what if you, what do you do if you don't have any ideas about who you might be? Like that's where 
sometimes it's just serendipity. Like it sounds like he didn't know what he was going to do with his life, but this one epiphany about maybe I can control my breathing suddenly or some over time just kind of blossomed into, you know, being the key to discovering a new identity. So maybe another piece of advice is kind of be open to possibilities. If somebody invites you to go to a ukulele lesson and you've never done ukulele lessons or even thought about it before, you know, but go along. And if you like it, you know, maybe that's something that you can kind of try to develop. So kind of being open to new experiences, but not expecting a new identity to just fall into your lap. You've got to build it. You've got to work on it. What may seem like the worst thing that can ever happen might turn out to be our greatest teacher, enabling us to gain a deeper understanding of who we really are. We learn that our perception is our reality. You have the power to change your identity and decide the person you want to be. You don't need to wait for some dramatic accident or surprise family reunion. Our job is to stay in touch with our inner self because sometimes our identity may need to shift and each time we'll need to do the hard work to get back to our real selves defined only by our personal experience and perception. As for me, who knows? I've always been curious about the ukulele. That's all from the Commune Podcast for today. I'll see you next week. Until then, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And drop us a review. See you next week.